You know, one that I think about a lot these days, I'll answer the question that way, is you know, how you lead a company through change. And I remember you know, I was talking to um, Ben Silverman, who's the founder and CEO of Pinterest. And, uh, and you know, a few things really resonated with me. You know, number one is he said, listen, you know, in the world of technology, everyone expects things to happen right away. And employees expect, you know, in, within two years or three years for there to be traction. And, you know, everyone is hyped up by these headlines. And Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Scott Belsky. Scott, thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me, Jess. So I was interested, I think it's on your website where it says something like author, entrepreneur, executive, at, you've got you've got a number of titles. How do you usually introduce yourself? A product obsessive. Well, can you can we start with just a little bit of background on launching Behance, selling to Adobe, leaving, coming back, and and just give people a little bit of like where you're at today, and then I want to talk about uh, your new book, The Messy Middle. Yeah, let's dive in. So you're at Goldman Sachs. What made you think let's start Behance? <laughs> well, you know, I, I studied design as undergrad, and uh, as well as a number of other things, I was sort of rudderless in my college education with all these different interests of my own. And then and then ended up back in 2001 when you were looking for an internship and a full-time job, you would kind of cut your teeth on Wall Street if you were trying to go into into business. And so I did. And and you know even while I was in a traditional kind of big company, I was always applying design to solve problems I was tasked with. And I remember requesting a, a copy of Adobe Illustrator at Goldman Sachs, which was kind of unheard of. And people didn't even understand what that was or why I would need it. But I was doing projects where I wanted to graphically illustrate ideas as opposed to using spreadsheets or only using spreadsheets. And so I always have had this fascination there. And and then, but really inspiration for me comes from frustration. And I had a lot of friends in the creative industry and I felt like a lot of them, their careers were at the mercy of circumstance. And, uh, and I felt like, you know, and I felt like these are the people that make our lives interesting. And why not build a business that's solely focused on helping organize the creative world and helping people succeed with the ideas they've already got? So that was really the origin story of Behance. And so I know we're going to talk about what happened in between the beginning and end, but what year did you start and what year did you sell to? Let's see. So I started Behance. It was uh, bootstrapped and really, you know, I started tinkering away back in 2005 and 2006 at when I was still you know, at Goldman. And then... And then I officially left to go to business school, but unofficially was really just starting Behance and, uh, and met my first two members of the team late 2006. And so and then we launched the first version of the network in 2007. And then we really proceeded for four more years without any third party capital, just trying to bootstrap the business with sales of paper products and books and conferences and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, everything we were doing was still centered around the same mission, which was to organize the creative world. And, uh, and that's really that and, that. and then and then we were acquired by Adobe in late 2012. 
That's exciting. So since being acquired, you've done different roles, took a step back and did more investing. Is that right? Before coming back as chief product officer? Do, or is it, do I have that wrong? Yes, right. So I was here for about three years and I did leave to do full-time investing. And then I came back in, let's see, 2018. Yeah, what brought you back? Yeah, late 2017. And I, I came back because I love building. And, uh, you know, I, I have this, this, this deep connection to the creative community. And, you know, and sometimes you don't realize what you have and how important the work is that you're doing to your own happiness until you lose it. And I think that was one of those lessons in my career, which is don't always do what everyone says you should be doing, which in my <laughs> case was investing, you know, do some time, you know, really make sure you do what makes yourself feel fully utilized, which ultimately is the ultimate driver of, of happiness. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into the book and let's let's talk about not just the beginning and the end of Behance. Let's talk about the middle and let's talk about all the people you've advised over the years and and some of the principles. So, for people who don't know about the new book, what's what's the intro? What's the what's the elevator pitch on the messy middle? Well, the messy middle is 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 really about the um, is really about bold projects, creative journeys, and the fact that we are fooled by the headlines we hear about how things quickly happened or how it was sort of a, a, a linear line up to the right from start to finish. And, and when in fact, you know, it's an extraordinarily volatile journey of ups and downs that often leave us hopeless and lost amidst anonymity, ambiguity, uncertainty, anxiety, and, and, uh, and that with every plateau or every, you know, every valley, there's something that we need to endure in, in order to keep our team together and in order to keep ourselves engaged and then at every high, there's also something that we re realize we need to optimize the head of, whether it's the way the product is performing or the business is working or the team is collaborating, et cetera. And so it's really about endurance and optimization. And I wanted to try to capture some of the insights in both from some of the best, most productive, creative people and teams in the world that I've always looked up to. That's fun. You know, so I'm about halfway through and I'm really enjoying it, but I, I did really like your last book. I feel like I felt like your previous book was like a little bit like coming to the principal's office for me slightly and like, <laughs> because I think I am one of these like ADD entrepreneurs slash artists who really needed making ideas happen. And it's funny at the time I was, uh, I, I'd taken a break from finance and was at a management consulting firm and I had hired one of our former clients. She's one of the first female officers in Naval special warfare with hmm. in charge of Navy SEALs wow. and very detail conscious. She's also a helicopter pilot, very accomplished woman. And she was getting out of the Navy and I snagged her to come, to come work for me. And she was so excited when I read that book and then had to read that book. She's like, this is what you need this whole time, Jess. We are doing this. So thanks for writing that book. But I think one of the things I want to, one of the things I want to start with is, do I remember a quote in the book about, you know, that, that wisdom isn't never quitting. Wisdom is knowing when mm -hmm. on certain things. Is that a quote from the book? Am I misremembering that? It may very well be, but I, you know, I think I try to dispel the uh, notion that quitting is a failure and, you know, and I, I really try to zero in on the measure of conviction, you know, whether you have more or less conviction after the lessons you've learned so far in pursuing something. You know, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of John Gray, who, you know, was Blackstone's head of real estate, now head of all Blackstone. And it's interesting how often he uses that word conviction and how they have risen to be, you know, the number one firm in the world for what he did. What does conviction mean to you? 
Well, I think for me, conviction is a measure of with everything I've observed and all the data points that I have, how much how much doubt do I have about a vision? And, you know, and of course, when you have it's it's very easy to have a lot of conviction on an idea because you haven't done anything with the idea yet. You know, it's it's conceptual. You haven't you've been forced to be pragmatic yet. And that's why there's a high in excitement that accompanies every idea because it's almost a lot. It's, it's a lot of conviction because all you can do is imagine what's possible and you can't yet be tainted with all the, you know, all the, all the realities. And then you're, and, and it's good that we get intoxicated when an idea strikes and we don't know better because that naivete is what oftentimes allows us to do something that's, you know, industry professionals would never do. I mean, there are lots of stories like the team at Airbnb who, you know, they, they launched into this because they didn't know how the hotel industry worked and the regulations and the realities of how, you know, and all the acronyms and everything else. And the idea, you know, and people in the hotel industry would have never done what they did because they would have, quote unquote, known better. Right. <laughs> and, and so the so but then you start to really learn a lot as you start to execute and work with customers and roll it out. And, you know, and that's very important because, of course, you become grounded with reality and you're forced to reconcile the delta between what you see in your head is possible and what is actually happening in the real world, which is completely different. And, uh, and, th and then with all this data, you, you start to really lose conviction and because you start to realize all the doubts and all the, you know, again, all the frictions and, and, and things that will get in the way of execution. And so, you know, I guess there's some point in which you lose enough conviction that you're not as, you, you don't even have that vision anymore. You don't even believe it's possible or the data you're getting and all the research and what you're learning from customers reaffirms your conviction and hardens it and, you know, and, and, and adds more, pro more proof points to it. And so I just think that people need to do a gut check of, you know, have I lost so much conviction that I'm like just doing it because I signed up to do it and I have a team and I raise money or whatever the case may be and I feel obligated or has my, all this research and data reaffirmed the convictions I had in the beginning? In which case, even if I go through tough periods, it's par for the course, I'm just in the messy middle. You know, that's it's so interesting. As you're saying that, it reminds me of a story I heard years ago from, I think it was BP Oil Company. And it was like, when, when their people said they give this well a 75% chance of hitting oil, it actually turned out to be more like 40%. Hmm. But if their people said, we give this one a 90% chance of hitting oil, it was more like 95%. Oh, interesting. And they just basically started putting like a moratorium, like unless you have a huge amount of conviction, we're not drilling this kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying that, it really reminded me of that. You know, it's interesting. What, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, your conference, I've been to so many different kinds of conferences over the years, a lot of finance, a lot of different kinds of conferences as well. But 99U, I think is like the standard. Everybody should be measured by, just, just so you know. Like I bragged about your Thanks. conference to so many people Thanks. ever since. What year was it that like Mark Echo was speaking and like yeah. Tina Eisenberg? Was that like yeah, 2014 yeah. maybe? 2015? It probably was. It was like 20, 20 either between you know, 2013 to 2016, I would say. Yeah. Something um, in that time frame. So I was so happy. You actually gave us a scholarship because of our charity, Child Rescue. So I came out oh, and went cool. to it. Yeah. And I had never heard of Tina Eisenberg beforehand. For people who want to look her up, it's swiss-miss.com. 
And this idea of like being such a top graphic designer and then realizing like that's not what she was interested in anymore. And like, we're not taking on clients anymore. We're going to do temporary tattoos. Like it's just not done, right? Reaching mm -hmm. the top of the game, but instead pursuing what she actually did have conviction and interest in in life. I, I thought it was a fascinating story, and it it sounds like there's some relation to what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And Tina's always, you know, she's a friend and someone I've admired for a long time as someone who beats to her own drum, and and takes passion product projects, and then really just sees how they organically resonate with the community and builds upon them accordingly. So I do think that's a that's a good observation. And you know, then you know, and you you know, the, the event that we held, which was initially actually just part of the strategy of bootstrap our company and get the word out. But it taught me that you can be a mission centric, medium agnostic company, and you can be about a mission, which was to organize the creative world and achieve it, you know, through any medium possible, in this case, a conference, as well as an online tool and paper products, etc. You know, I think it, it also, um, you know, it was the manifestation of our of our mission because you it, it was so organized, and I always would tell the team, like, we want this conference to feel like our brand. If we're all about organizing creativity, then when you go to this conference, you should feel like everywhere you go, you know where you're, you how you got there, you know where to go next, you know what to do, and so we had some fun designing the experience, you know, to to be that way. So I'm glad that came through. Well. Yeah, I feel like your guys' attention to detail was was incredible. Like the experience, the 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 events beforehand when we were at the art galleries and got to meet so many other participants, and like even just the like right down to the back. Do you, like I have got endless amounts of swag at stupid conferences over the two decades of pretending to be an adult here, you know, mm -hmm. and it almost all like either immediately goes in the trash or ends up in the trash, like within a month of being home. I think my wife still uses that white bag with the stripes across the side because it, it looked <laughs> like it's just well designed. It's an attractive okay. bag. And, you know, well, tell me this. What's one of your favorite stories from the from the new book? Stories. So many that I think really, you know, really reached out. I mean, I guess... You know, one that I think about a lot these days, I'll answer the question that way, is you know, how you lead a company through change. And I remember you know, I was talking to um, Ben Silverman, who's the founder and CEO of Pinterest. And uh, you know, a few things really resonated with me. And number one is he said, listen, you know, in the world of technology, everyone expects things to happen right away. And employees expect, you know, in within two years or three years for there to be traction. And, you know, everyone is hyped up by these headlines and nobody feels like they're making enough progress. And he said, but, you know, Scott, he said, you know, I came from a, a family of doctors and everyone in my family went through at least seven years of school and three years of training to be able to actually work and do something. And, um, and so it's just crazy that, you know, and so he, I've really kind of tried to build the culture of Pinterest more to resemble what it means to be a master, to get a mastery in something like medicine than, you know, than to, than in a typical Silicon Valley framework. So that really resonated. And the second thing he said to me was that it's really important when you have many objectives every, to have a chapter for your company every year and to really have a narrative around that chapter for your team. And so... There was an early time Pinterest where they were trying to break out of the U.S. And so it was the year of internationalization. And there was also a time when the company was trying to figure out how to be a business and monetize. And it was the year of monetization. And, you know, every year they basically applied a theme. And I just, you know, really that really resonated with me. And, and that was something that you know, I captured and put in the book. 
Yeah, it's it's not the typical story that you read in the business news all the time, is it? No, it's not. Um, so I'm interested. How early did you invest in Pinterest? In their in their seed round, I, it was my first ever investment. I had no business investing. I was still <laughs> a uh, I was still a founder of a company, but it was you know about four or five years into Behance, and Pinterest was also a grid based experience, much like Behance was with projects that represented the portfolio as opposed to pins from a pin board. And so there was a lot of similarity in some ways between the two products. And frankly, my biggest insecurity at the time as a leader of a tech company was the fact that I was in New York and my ne- my tech network <laughs> back in 2000 and, you know, 2006 through 2010 or whatever was mostly, you know, it was all tech New York people, which was a very small intimate but small community. And so I really felt like I wanted to build a network and learn from people who had been at the Googles of the world and had a West Coast um, base. And so I was introduced to Ben, you know, based on just becoming a product advisor. And I started to sit and work with him a little bit. And I also realized, wow, so if I, you know, write a, a small check into this company's round, in some ways, I'm also buying an education and, a, and, and an opportunity to build a network on the West Coast and everything else. And so funny enough, like that was actually the, at least the story I told myself as to why at a time when I was basically making no salary and didn't have much savings left that I should do that. So I got really lucky because, you know, obviously Ben ended up being an amazing founder and entrepreneur and the Pinterest journey taught me so much and, you know, is a, is a really unique company in its space right now. You know, they're, they're an interesting business to me for a couple of reasons, but I mean, one of them is I'm an obsessive pinner. I think I have like 60, 60 or 70,000 pins pinned oh, okay? wow. and like 28,000 <laughs> followers. And I never tried. I've just, you know, it's just like every time I see stuff all the time and um, like saving it for future inspiration kind of thing. You know, we recently had, I think it was like engineer number six, Asaf Sahil Lavinia on the show. I think he's the guy that built Pinterest mobile app. Mm. And it, it was interesting. You know, he had some similar things to you to say about like it, it didn't feel like a typical tech company in, in a number of ways. So what was it that you saw back then? Or or what do you, what you, know, do you yeah look at reflecting backwards? I mean, for me, it's it's really about product and founding team, first and foremost. I think the second thing is about vision. And the third thing is deep empathy with customer. And and that, they te- that team had all of it going for them. I thought Ben was a super found, thoughtful founder and same with Evan Sharp, who was the you know early designer there. I think that the product sensibility was deep and very careful crafts, craftspeople type of culture for digital experiences, which I really loved. I, I feel like the the vision of helping everyone collect and recognizing that everyone has interests and in some ways, what represents our identity most authentically, more authentically than our interests. You know, it's one thing to take a cool Instagram snapshot of yourself or something, a travel experience. And, you know, try to sort of culturally flex yourself, you know, based on what you put on these social platforms. But just showing your interests and becoming a, you know, a, a curator of what's interesting to you is a really interesting edge of identity that I thought was fascinating. And I really bought into that vision. And then when it came to customer empathy, you know, Ben and team would go to the Midwest and focus groups with some of the early adopters, which happened to be moms in the Midwest, basically, of the United States. 
and they deeply understood how the product was being used and they were able to translate that into the product roadmap. So I just was always so impressed by that stuff when, you know, when we were first working together as a product advisor and, you know, and the opportunity to, you know, to become an investor and to be along for that journey and learn from how they did all this stuff. Yeah. I bet you have, you know, investing in Uber and Carta and Cheddar and Periscope. I bet you have all sorts of stories like that from these different experiences. Yeah, but they were all sort of similar people, you know, I feel like I was in the right place at the right time in some of these instances and also felt like the people, you know, and having the relationship with the people and being able to contribute to their product was just what what made that happen. Yeah. Um, well, tell us, why, why don't you teach us one of the principles from the book next? What are the, say that again, sorry? Why don't you just teach us one of your favorite principles from the book? Oh, favorite principles. Hmm. It's hard to think of which one. I mean, there's a hundred and so principles or so, but I mean, I'll just yeah. pick one. You know, I think the counterintuitive one maybe, or at least something we don't think about as much is is around talent. And you know, we spend so much time trying to hire talent. I, I'm trying to obsessively hire great talent in my role, you know, leading product at Adobe and modernizing our teams and building, you know, products for the, for the future of creativity. And, uh, and also startups, everyone's, you know, everyone's looking for great talent. And then we hire talent, finally, when we find it and are able to close it and spend a fortune doing so. And then it's like, okay, you know, good luck grafting onto the team. <laughs> and I think we overlook the fact that grafting talent is just as important as recruiting talent. And, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, what are the factors that really drive the success of grafting talent to a team? I think part of it is, you know, empathy, you know, understanding the learning curve that people are on, making sure that we're not, you know, we're not acting on our biases as new people come in. Um, people come in with all kinds of different experiences, you know, in the, in the early, in the, in the higher or more senior people that you hire onto your team, you know, the immune system is likely to reject them. I remember when um, I hired my COO of Behance, who actually now leads Behance at Adobe, to this day, at the first two or three weeks, because he came in with his own way of doing things, I had almost a line outside my office of people saying, this is not going to work, this is not going to work. And it was the immune system kind of rejecting this new, strong, foreign body, you know, and uh, with a whole new set of best practices that, frankly, we really needed. And what I learned is that you kind of have to blunt the immune system to some degree to allow a new organ to take hold, in this case, a senior employee that you higher onto your team. And so that's, you know, also what I mean by, you know, grafting and helping that person integrate themselves. You know, I think you have to foster a sense of psychological safety, you know, teams that, you know, teams that feel or, or people that feel like, you know, they're not able to take a risk and fail will then actually start oftentimes making more mistakes and, you know, acting out of a feel out of a sense of lack of psychological safety onto the team. So, and, you know, in real, in real time communication, giving people feedback, you know, these are all uh, different ways that we can successfully graft talent onto our teams. You know, I'm interested. Do you have any just advice for founders or CEOs out there who they have the anxiety of like, does this person just interview well, or are they actually going to be great? Do you have any thoughts about how to how to sort through that before you hire? Well, what I try to do is just get out of the interview mode and into the conversation mode, and uh, and start talking, you know, trying to really understand the conflicts and the challenges someone has faced and how do they handle it? You know, I always like the interview question, do you consider yourself lucky? Because it also gives a sense of someone's 
perspective, level of gratitude, and you know, and 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 all these other sort of dimensions of someone's you know psyche that will determine what they are like on the team. But listen, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very thin slice of somebody. And, uh, and, you know, some people just don't interview well, and, but they're really good in other ways, you know, on the team. So it's very tricky. And, you know, I don't know what is a good batting average for, uh, for hiring. It's probably, you know, lower than we think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. You know, I'm, I'm not done the book yet, but as I said, I'm really enjoying it. And I think for me, like, I, I can look back at my entrepreneurial career so far with regret sometimes. But in some ways, your book has been a little cathartic of like, started maybe like a dozen plus companies, a couple of them made a lot of money and the rest were like kind of total catastrophes, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I think I just, I love your messages about endurance and, and being prepared for, for the middle part, like being prepared for the middle part to not be the celebration part. And do you have any, do you have any thoughts about that or anything to add here? Well, I think that when it comes to endurance, and I think a big part of it is short-circuiting our reward system so that we can kind of keep ourselves engaged and feeling like we're making progress when we're, you know, really questioning whether we are or not. There was a, a, a woman by the name of Teresa Mabale that I worked with at Harvard Business School. She was a professor focusing on creativity and business and did a lot of research in the area. And one big project she did that's pretty well known for in her in, in that world is had I don't know how many thousand people take a diary every day of their level of motivation and what projects they were working on and whether they were making progress or not and you know and, and through a number of other ways of conducting this research determined that progress is the best driver of progress like when you feel like you're making progress you make more progress and when you don't feel like you're making progress you don't make progress and so therefore it's like a you know how do you ensure that the team feels the progress that they are making. And what you don't want to, you know, obviously, and, and you need to do so in a way that's authentic and, and truthful. And the analogy I like to apply to this is that when you're, you know, through these earlier phases of a journey or a business, you're driving a car on a cross-country journey with the windows blacked out in the back seats. And so no one in the back that you're bringing along on this journey, your team, your investors, etc., they don't know whether they're stuck on the bridge in traffic or whether they're crossing major milestones in the journey and making progress. And so the degree to which you narrate the journey for them and tell them and explain what you're seeing and what it looks like and how fast you're going or, oh, the light just turned green. I mean, all of these sorts of things actually help people continue to do their work knowing that they're making progress in this journey to an area, to a place they can't even see. And so that narration capability and skill set is not a natural thing for a lot of us. In fact, you know, for an introvert or for someone who prefers to be behind the screen, you know, making things happen, or someone who just wants to be focused on action and execution and whatever else, sometimes we forget to actually narrate this. What are the skill sets? You know, what are the what are the ta- tactics here? I mean, obviously, one of them is to merchandise, to use the same factors that Madison Avenue uses to get us to buy things, to get people to believe in the progress they're making and the actions they need to take, whether that's putting up digital billboards in your office or applying some design to the roadmap so it looks interesting instead of being stuck in some spreadsheet somewhere, narrating like Ben Silberman did, as we were talking about earlier, with the chapter for every year. You know, whatever your merchandising strategy is, you got to have one. I think the second thing is to 
make up a synthetic set of rewards. This is what I mean by short-circuiting your reward system when there aren't traditional rewards there. Rewards there. So traditional rewards are, oh, we're making money quarter by quarter. We have a growth rate of customers, of revenue. It's easy to work when you were geared towards those rewards from birth, right? We are. You know, we from from the day we were born, we aspired for our parents' affection and then a grade in the on the test and a grade in the course, a salary every two weeks. It was actually at another 99U conference where the venture capitalist uh, Fred Wilson spoke and said that the two greatest addictions in life are heroin and a weekly salary. So how do we unplug ourselves, you know, from these, from those, from those traditional rewards or, or, or you know, and how do we synthetically hardwire or, or, or short circuit our reward system? And so we have to make those things up. And we had all kinds of fun ones in the days of uh, Behance. I mean, I was a vegetarian and everyone wanted me to eat meat. And so I was like, okay, fine. You know, when we have a hundred thousand members as if that will ever happen, I will agree. And I made the, they made me sign something and it became a bet. <laughs> and we ended up having many, many bets over the years. And, and those became milestones for the team. I mean, the funniest one was we used to come in every day in 2007 and 2008, we used to type in Behance into Google and it used to say, do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? And so Behance was a spelling mistake in Google and we weren't even recognized as a legitimate website or brand. And so we wanted to, that became a goal. That became like a reward we aspired for. It was not correlated with revenue or users or anything else, but it drove the right behaviors of SEO, of blogs, of making portfolios for our members and linking to them, et cetera. And then lo and behold, one day we came in and Behance was a legitimate search result. And then I kid you not, six months later, Beyonce became super popular and we lost it all over again. <laughs> so, so I think that those are the types of games you have to play. And, and that's really the, the playbook for enduring one of these journeys. Yeah, I think my next question is, I'm just, you know, as you talk, I can just, I think it's very easy for me to envision what this would have been like for you to be in the room with the team, inventing the product day in, day out. Can you give us a bit of a glimpse of what life is like now as a chief products officer of, you know, I think I saw Adobe's market cap today was like $300 billion, something like that. What's that like now? Yeah, it's, you know, in, in some ways, a big company is very different. And in some ways, being successful at a big company is means you have to make it sort of the same as it is in a small company. And you know, oftentimes the way to fix something or do something truly revolutionary in a big company is to do it the way a small company would. You know, a small company can get the right people in the room really quickly, make a decision, get everyone aligned and stick to it. And a big company with different hierarchies and chains of command and different organizations with different budgets and different goals, you know, sometimes it's even hard to do that but if you can short circuit that, then sometimes uh, you can really lead change in a big company, which is really part of the fun of, of what you know I get to do. At the end of the day, I'm most motivated by delivering great products to our customers. It just is amazing to me that we can improve a product that literally millions of people use every single day and uh, you know, and, and potentially make their life better, save them time. I mean, any amount of time you save a photographer or an illustrator or a designer through a new feature that's powered by artificial intelligence or a new workflow that enables you to collaborate without friction. You know, any amount of time you save creative people in aggregate adds up to years and years of creative output that you are therefore unleashing onto the world mm -hmm. that never existed before. 
And it sounds kind of cliche, but it's 100% true. And, you know, it's just we don't quantify it and therefore oftentimes don't value it. But I was extraordinarily driven by that. And if you do that, you earn the customer's trust and loyalty and you'd serve the business. So, you know, I think it's really exciting to try to make that impact at scale. I also am sort of getting a degree in leading change by being at Adobe at a time when more and more products are collaborative and on the web and mobile. And we have to build out of the framework of our traditional, you know, desktop download products. And so it's just a, a really fun experience to do that as well. You know, and, and there are certainly times where I miss the simplicity of having, you know, everyone, you know, everyone within within uh, 200 feet of me, you know, and being able to call anyone at any time and just make a decision right together. At that. But I believe that the benefits, you know, of, 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 of what you can do as a big company do outweigh those costs. Yeah, it's funny you brought up Illustrator before. You know, as a media company, we use, we're big Adobe Suite fans around here. But Illustrator is my weapon of choice, just because that's mm. what I had in my illustration classes 20 years ago. So it's still been. But I guess my question for me is, as you think about leading, essentially, many like product leaders for these different products, what's a principle that you use to approach that, knowing that they're going to have a messy middle on getting from where they are to where they'd like to be? Well, I think... You know, in, in, the, in, the, in the instance you're asking, I'm the one who needs to make the narrative that I was describing earlier. Mm. You know, I'm in the driver's seat and, you know, and I have a lot of amazing teams, you know, in the back seat that need to know where we are. And, and so I, I think that that's, that's something I take really seriously because it's how we can retain this team, you know, keep to, keeping a team together long enough to, and keeping a team together and be patient, you know, for, for strategy to play out. It's so hard. You know, having a great strategy is almost the easy part. You know, it's 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 just the patience to let it play out is really hard. And so I think that's I think that's a big part of a big part of it. Another piece of advice I'd be interested in is I, I think about how I think about the quality of people that you have been able to get invent get involved in your projects. I mean, even just the people at 99U, for instance. Do you have any advice or principles when people think about collaborating and attracting top, you know, top thinkers, tastemakers, people like this who who might be in-demand people like a Mark Echo or something? Do you have any thoughts about, you know, treat people like people and and make it cool enough to attract them? Or like what are what are some of your guidelines for for getting top talent to want to collaborate with you guys on stuff? Well, I think that you know, I'll take a step back and say that I think that the most the most important you know, skill that they don't really teach in business school and is, in fact, ironically, somewhat despised in the corporate world, or not despised, but not, you know, sort of not seen as elegant is sales. You know, it's all about sales. We're constantly selling vision and the road to get there to our employees, to investors, to press, to, you know, to everyone that we want to have a partnership with and interact with. So having a skill set of sales is important. And I think a big part of that is understanding where each person is when they're listening to you. So anyone who is a executive or a celebrity, I mean, you have to really be empathetic to like what their life is like, right? They're constantly being asked to do things. They're constantly being bombarded in their inbox. They're constantly being sold to. They're constantly being taken advantage of. As a result, they put up a membrane around them. They don't trust anyone who they don't know. 
everything has to come in through a warm intro as opposed to a cold intro. And, um, and they're always prepared to be taken advantage of and used in some way that they don't feel comfortable with. And so that's where you're starting from with, the, with, with these folks. However, they also are people and they have unique fascinations and things they want to learn and, and, um, and things that they do want to sort of add to their brand and, uh, and their repertoire, right? And so, for example, when it came to 99U and reaching out to speakers for the conference, it was, it was always about connecting with the core creative community. You know, all of these people ultimately also have an insecurity about being connected to what's next, you know, seeing what's latest and being, mm -hmm. you know, still being a part of that, in that core creative community, as opposed to being too corporate or being too big to be in touch with the roots, you know, that kind of thing. And so that was oftentimes, you know, part of the, part of the narrative to make it really interesting to them, you know, to come and participate and, uh, you know, and then also leading with your mission, you know, we're, we're trying to help organize creative people. And, um, you know, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And persistence. There were people who I would email two, three, four years in a row. And then they finally, finally said yes. And, you know, and that's, you, know, you just have to create a system for that. And, you know, now, you know, there are certain conferences that, that reach out to me and, you know, and it requires a trip somewhere or whatever else. And I just sort of can never prioritize it. But, you know, when, when, when a team comes back after three, four years and says, we'd love to ask you again, you start to actually feel compelled to say yes because of the persistence. <laughs> so, so I actually think that's quite a, quite a tactic that should be employed. Yeah. Um, thinking about sales, I think somewhere you described it as that you have a part-time job advising founders and CEOs or something like that. Um, thinking about these, these folks who come to you for advice when they need to sell investors because they're raising around, what's a piece of, uh, what's a piece of fundraising advice that you give out to, to, to folks that are raising money. Yeah. Startup, and, startup yeah. founders who are raising money and they got to sell this investor on coming into the round. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's all about, it's all about the people. And so I think we get very focused on the brands of firms and, uh, and when at the end of the day, it's someone who is going to sit on your board and going to have a relationship with you. I also think that increasingly companies are going to benefit from having specific people with superpowers as opposed to generalists. I think there's something to be said about knowing how you can use each investor of yours in a very specific way. And, uh, and that's just a change. Just think about it. I mean, money in decades past was always and only available for the most part from institutions that were essentially bankers. And so these institutions oftentimes were led by people who were in the finance world. And you just kind of got the nicest one who could maybe get, you know, leverage the network, their network in some way to help you and you just take their money. But now we're in a world where a lot of the money going into the startup ecosystem is recycled capital from the exits of people that were in the in this world, and that money you know is coming from people who who really have a something that they're really good at. You know, each person probably has some real de depth of experience that they can tap you know for your benefit as a as a company. And so I really encourage founders to put a list together of the superpowers they want on their cap table. And then let's think about who are the people in each of the superpowers that you want to you want to approach, and then who are the people we use to get to them. I love it. 
Well, obviously, I think everybody should be going to scottbelsky.com or straight to themessymiddle.com to get their own copy of the book. And uh, I'm listening to it on audio, which is a weapon of choice there. But Scott, maybe as kind of a final question here, it's fascinating to me how much you've accomplished. And you think about how many people, ambitious, smart people, good intentions, high skills that haven't accomplished what you've done. What do you think that you've done differently that not everyone else has done? Well, listen... (laughs) I, I appreciate that, you know, that I, I feel like I, you know, I've, there are a lot of shortcomings in my career and a lot of mistakes and, and, you know, I feel also like I got some lucky breaks. I mean, the, the, the difference between a success and a failure in a startup is, is a really fine line, you know, finer than any of us would like to admit. So, you know, what I do think though, is that I've always taken every opportunity that presents itself really seriously. You know, if anything, I've, I've probably said yes too often, but they've, it's always led me to something that I didn't expect. You know, I do firmly believe that a labor of love always pays off, just not how you anticipated. And you know, I've, I've just lived my life with that as a mantra. And that's how I ensure that I don't get seduced by joining a company for the wrong reasons or following headlines and, her- and herds of people to what's hot as opposed to joining something that's not hot and making it hot. You know, when I was starting a network in the creative industry, people said, good luck with that. You know, no one, creatives don't make any money and they're never going to pay you any money and there's no money, right? <laughs> but I but I just, I saw the, you know, I saw the, it was, it was a labor of love. And I also believed that this group of people made our lives interesting and are ultimately, you know, the creators of so much of what gives us value in our lives. So I, you know, I think you have to, you have to do that even when it's hard. And, you know, sometimes you're turning down a job that's offering you more money, or you're turning down a title to do something that is more associated with your love. And so just get closer and closer to what you genuinely love and are interested in, and then capitalize on every opportunity that presents itself. And, you know, I think you will land in a really exciting spot, just not one that you may have expected i love it i think that's i think that's a mic drop there that's that's great advice uh, and i appreciate how much time you've spent with us here today thanks for doing this absolutely well thanks for having me and and i really enjoyed the conversation